Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Okay, it is a Thursday night, and the about the only announcement that I am aware of is that I've heard that Herman Maddox is slowly, and I want to emphasize that word slowly, this takes time to recover your a lot of your cognitive functions and reading and speaking and things like that, working with the therapist, but the word is he's, he's doing well. Also continue to pray for Dan Ingram, Pastor Ingram, and his, uh, he still has, I think, another five months or five more chemo treatments to go uh, in his treatment of his, uh, of his malignant brain tumor. So please be in prayer for them and in prayer for uh, Chafer Seminary, for others. There's, uh, uh, of course, Chafer and West Houston Bible Church do everything via live streaming just about or online, so we're in pretty good shape compared to a lot of ministries and a lot of people. But nevertheless, we, uh, we need to continue to pray for all of these different ministries that we're involved in. So as we begin, we need to make sure that we're not being spiritually distanced from God. When we sin, we are. We are spiritually distanced in the sense that we're not walking with the Lord. We're not walking by the Spirit, walking in the light, or walking in the truth. We're walking in darkness. And the way to recover is simply to confess sin. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that we have eternal life, and eternal life is a life that cannot be lost. But when we sin, that walk by the Spirit is uh, is uh, broken. It's uh, it, it stops. We're no longer walking. We are on our own, and we have to recover, and that is through confession of sin. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's good for us to be together, even though we're a small group due to the situation with the pandemic. We're uh, glad to be here and to be able to focus on your word. Your word always gives us great hope and great strength, and it is a light unto our path, lamp unto our feet, and a light unto our path. Father, we're thankful that we have the illumination of your word, uh, the illumination that enables us to think accurately, and not on the basis of human viewpoint, not on the basis of our finite understanding. 
strengthen us in our trust. We're in a difficult year around the world. We have so many things that are going on and things which are always uncertain. Are It's more apparent to us now that it's uncertain. But we rejoice in the fact that we know that you are not surprised by any of this. You're working out your plan. And that I hear stories every day of ways in which you are using different people to be a testimony, to reach out uh, with the gospel, or just to be able to help others apply scripture. And for that, we're thankful. Father, open our eyes to the truth of your word tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are continuing our study on Thursday nights on how should we then vote. This is similar to one I did about 12 years ago in 2008. I believe that only had about six different messages, but these are a little different. I've restructured it, and hopefully we're going to try to get a book out of this. But I want to make it, break it down and uh, make it uh, a little more basic for a lot of people. So tonight we're going to continue looking at the topic I introduced in the first lesson, which was worldview. It's important to understand that every single human being has a worldview. And a worldview basically is another way of talking about a person's philosophy of life, why they believe the things they believe, why they hold the values they hold to, why they think some things are right and some things are wrong, or maybe they don't believe anything is wrong and everything is right. It has to do with their understanding of knowledge, where we come to understand knowledge, whether we think there's one truth or many truths, or everybody tr- everybody's truth is okay, and that has to do with the area of knowledge, and then ultimately it all derives from our view of ultimate reality. And there's basically, uh, there are really a number of different views, but they boil down to a a creator who is distinct from his creation, And every other view just about has God as a part of his creation. And so where you end up in your thinking about God or whether you think it's just the universe or fatalism, all of these have different different, um, factors when it comes to understanding knowledge, understanding values, and understanding politics. And so it ultimately all comes down down to God. And so tonight, as part of our discussion, as we work through what it what we believe about God, included with that within that is also uh the view of what makes human beings valuable, what makes them distinct. Because as we study the uh, Judeo Christian worldview, the theistic worldview that is taught in the Bible We see that every human being is created in the image of God and thus is unique, thus is valuable, and thus no matter what they've done or what's ever happened, they are still in the image and likeness of God and therefore are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ and have value and can have a future for eternity with God if they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So where we've been starting, to give us a bit of a framework, is Psalm 11.3, asking the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What are the foundations of a nation? What are the foundational beliefs that should be present in the people of a nation in order to promote 
the kinds of values that have been historically part of America, and that is a value placed upon the individual and the freedom that every individual should have, the liberty that we hold dear. And it is ultimately uh, not a freedom or liberty to do whatever we want, but it is a liberty from the control and the tyranny of, of government so that we are set free to pursue our hopes, our dreams, and produce excellence in our lives and not to just do whatever it is that we want to do. So we have been looking at this idea of a worldview using the illustration of an iceberg that only 10% is above the surface. You, you don't really see what's below, below the surface. And this iceberg represents, or the area below the surface, represents the foundation of all thought. What we see above the surface are the, all those issues that come up that we argue about in terms of politics. We argue about whether or not there is just war. We argue whether we should be in the Middle East or we should be out of the Middle East. We argue about uh, the death penalty. We argue about theories of, of um, punishment for criminals. We argue about uh, the role of men, the role of women, gender identification, all of these different things. We we argue about uh, the right to life versus abortion. All of these are all surface issues. And to understand them, we ha at the, what the real issues are ultimately, we have to go below the surface. So the foundation at the very bottom is our view of ultimate reality, as I've said before. The technical term that is used in philosophy is metaphysics. That is what goes beyond the physical? That's the literal breakdown of the meaning of that word. What is beyond the physical? That which we can't see, taste, feel, um, hear, smell. What goes beyond the physical world? Is there something beyond that? And so that has to do with ultimate reality. Or is there a creator God or is it just that matter itself that is that is eternal then we have to ask the question about knowledge how do we know anything where does knowledge come from how do we know uh, what is true and what is false how do we know right from wrong just from the unjust or are even be aware of these categories that leads us to the third area which is ethics what is right what is wrong and the fact that we believe that there are absolutes leaks out of everybody. Whether you believe anything about the Bible is true, you can be the most relativistic philosopher on the planet. And sooner or later, somebody's going to make some statement. You're going to say, that's wrong. But if you're a relativist, you have no right to say that anything is right or wrong. Where do you get those categories? Where does that come from? If everything is relative, there are no absolutes. And, of course, that's part of the problem in postmodernism is when you say there are no absolutes, that is an absolute statement, so it's self-refuting. So we have to talk about ethics and politics, which has to do with the arrangement, the social arrangement of people and how they administer and govern themselves is a result of these three below the water level 
categories. So before we start talking about how we make decisions, how should we vote, we have to understand what the biblical framework is and and then go from there. So we have to look at this in terms of its logical sequence, starting with the view of ultimate reality and working our way through it. And that's what we did last time. I was a little rushed at the end, so we'll go back and pick up a couple of things I didn't quite touch on last time. And then we'll get into the next category, which has to do with knowledge, how we know what we know, or technically known as epistemology. Okay, last time I started breaking this down as a Judeo-Christian worldview. I had six points. I'm not going to review the last three because the first three are the ones we're working through right now. The first view in a Judeo-Christian worldview, now let me tell you why I'm calling it that. Because in the founding, founding generation, the founding fathers of the United States, men primarily, and it was men, remember men were the ones who met, men were the voters. Once they got the Constitution, they did not have, and there was a reason for that. We'll get there eventually. A lot of people today think that's primordial and patriarchal, but they, they, they don't understand what the issues were. This had nothing to do with with what most people claim it had to do with. It had to do with the fact that they, the founders were so influenced by a biblical worldview that they understood that the core entity of a nation was the family, and the man was the head of the family, biblical truth. Therefore, the man voted. He voted for the family. The the Constitution says we were established as a republic. The idea that we were founded as a democracy is fallacious. It is historically inaccurate, and democracies have always failed. We'll talk about that some as we go along. But we have to understand the thinking that went into the founding of this country. These men were very well educated. I would guess that m- most of them were more educated than anybody we have uh, working for the national government in Washington, D.C. today. They were much more educated. We had a much higher sense of what education was uh, 200 years ago than we do today. So, But not all of them were Christians, because you, know, you often get in this discussion, well, is the United States a Christian nation? You have to really work with your definition there. Uh, what did they mean when they talked about Christianity? And what I'm saying is they all had a, a view of Christian theism that was informed heavily by the Old Testament, so therefore it's a Judeo-Christian worldview. And I, when most people talk about a Christian theism, they will include certain things about Christ, and I don't have those included because we're talking about something that is that applied to those who were not believers or that they did not have a biblically orthodox view of the person and work of Christ. And that would be true for a certain segment, but it was a very small, probably fewer than 5% were influenced by uh, what I will call rationalistic theism as opposed to deism. You'll usually hear your uh, liberal uninformed uh, college, university professors say that most of the founding generation were deists. 
But deism has a technical meaning. And they were, as I pointed out, they weren't deists. They believed in the providence of God. They believed in God as a creator. These were things I pointed out uh, last week when we talked about uh, the founder's view. And I was a little rushed at the time, so we didn't get through it all. But in a Judeo-Christian worldview, number one, God is the creator of all things. And he created human beings in his image and likeness, giving them value and purpose. We're talking about that still this evening. Uh, Second, the Bible is God's revelation to man. We'll be touching on this as well. And is completely accurate in all that it reveals to man, teaching them how to live wisely in God's creation, which has now been marred, corrupted by sin. And the third part of this is God created the human race in his image, both male and female, thus giving value to every single human being. Now, when we started at the first part, talking about God as the creator of all things, of course, that's emphasized in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's also emphasized in Exodus chapter uh, 20, verse 16, for in six days God made the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. And that's God's rationale for why the Jews were to work for six days and rest on the seventh, for in six days God created the heavens and the earth and all the, the seas and all that is in them and rested on the seventh. So that's the pattern. Again and again through the Old Testament, God is referred to as the creator of all things. That is distinct. So last time what I did was I set up five basic categories. This is different from talking the way I normally talk about the essence of God, but this is what directly relates to the thinking of the late late 18th century uh, American colonists. Uh, They looked at God, their view of God, that he was a personal God and an infinite God. So we talked about that last time. By personal, we mean that he is a person. He has identity. He has self-consciousness. He is capable of personal relationships. He has intellect. He knows all things because he is infinite. He has no limits to his knowledge. So he has intellect. He has will. We talk about the sovereignty of God. He rules over his creation according to his will. And so he has will and self-determination. He communicates to his creatures, and he created man and angels, the only two sentient beings that he created. He created them with the ability to understand him, understand his revelation, and to communicate back to him. So that all relates to this idea that he is a personal God. He designed human beings to have this intimate relationship with him. He loves his creatures. He is loved by his creatures, and he has a personal relationship with him. The infinite idea uh, applies to every one of his attributes. There are no limits to his sovereignty. There are no limits to his love. There's no limits to his righteousness or his justice. There's no limits to his life. He has no beginning and no end. There are no limits to his presence. He is equally present to every aspect of his creation. There are no limits to his knowledge. There's no limits to his power. He is absolute truth, and he never changes forever and ever. He is always the same. 
He is the creator God. He created all things. We'll see this is affirmed by the founding fathers. He is the redeemer, not just redeemer in the New Testament sense, but also the Old Testament sense, that in the Old Testament he redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. And this was a a theme or a motif that often was used by preachers comparing the, the slavery to the Pharaoh, by the, the Israelite slavery to the Pharaoh, to the enslavement of citizens to Britain, to King George. And he was often referred to analogously to the Pharaoh or even to future Antichrist in, in their sermons. So they understood that the redemption of God in the Old Testament focused on freeing the slaves in Egypt uh, from their slavery. We have the concept of the providence of God, that God rules over his creation, and God is the lawgiver. A couple of passages that support that, Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two, for Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, for the Lord is our judge. God is the ultimate judge over the universe. This implies something that was very dear to the Founding fathers, many of them wrote about this, why it was so important for a nation to be a nation of Christians. Because when they talk about religion, they meant Christianity. As I pointed out last time, about 97 or 98% of the colonists in America were Christians. Some were Roman Catholic, most nearly all of them were Protestant. The uh, remainder... Uh, were there were about 2,000 Jews, so 98% were Protestant, and the rest were, aside from about 2,000 Jews, the rest were uh, Roman Catholic. So it is a Protestant nation that people have been taught that. You had Quakers, you had Baptists, you had Baptists who, all Baptists believe in the separation of church and state, but you had others that believed in a church, close church-state relationship, such as you had in Connecticut as well as in um, in uh, Massachusetts, whereas Rhode Island was founded by the Baptist Roger Williams, and so um, this makes a makes a difference. And so all of that was was in the mix, but they're all Protestant. A vast majority, some say as much as 75%, came out of a Reformed theology background. Many Baptists were very Reformed in their theology. That means that they were influenced by the thinking of John Calvin, his school of theology that developed uh, from the early 1500s, 1520s in Geneva, sent uh, trained theologians and pastors and sent them out to England, to Scotland, many other places. Martin Luther's uh, theology was very much the same. God is the ultimate judge, and we will all be held accountable by him at some time in the future. And that is a great uh, point of restraint for the citizens to understand. And then the second line, the Lord is our lawgiver. He is the ultimate source of of absolutes. He is the ultimate source of law, and of course, specifically in the Old Testament, that referred to giving the Mosaic law, which was both a, a spiritual law code as well as a civil law code. 
James 4.12 in the New Testament. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? And so that statement about the lawgiver saving and destroying has to do with delivering or uh, eternally punishing. And so that's why I asked the question, God is the one who judges according to his law. Who are you? So what were the views of the founders in relation to these categories? Well, let, I'll give you some examples. Now, this is before the Constitution. For a period after the Declaration of Independence, the individual colonies wrote their own constitutions, and then they were organized under a confederacy, and the Constitution, as it were, of that confederacy was called the Articles of Confederation. But if we look at the, how the various states wrote their constitutions, it gives us an idea of what they valued what their ideas were. And so, for example, in the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780, at the beginning we read, We therefore, the people of Massachusetts, acknowledging with grateful hearts the goodness of the great legislator of the universe. That is how they referred to God. So they understand that God is the lawgiver. They have that from their Judeo-Christian heritage. And, of course, Massachusetts at that time was uh, heavily influenced by the Reformed theology of the Puritan movement. You had your Congregationalists. You also had had other... uh, uh, You had Presbyterian churches. This was all uh, out, out... could trace their theological roots back to Calvin. Now, the Constitution, I brought some, pointed this out last time as well. The Constitution, we have the statement, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A, a, Decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now, I've underlined the laws of nature and nature's God. This is a point of contention. What does that mean? There are many, I heard it from many history professors and teachers, read it in many books, that this is really, these are deistic terms. And so this shows that Jefferson's hand in the Constitution, I mean, in the Declaration, but they forget that there were four other men on the committee, and they revised a lot of what Jefferson wrote. So Jefferson, you cannot say Jefferson wrote this. The other thing I'll point out is this, as we go along, is that this language was common language. This is how Orthodox, Bible-believing pastors and and pew-sitters believed this is how they talked in that generation. This wasn't unique to deism. In fact, deism, as I'll show, got the language uh, from the Orthodox Christians. And the next paragraph says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Now, that's a really interesting phrase because when we talk about how do we know what we know, what is self-evident? Self-evident was a important term. That means it is obvious uh, to anyone, something that is 
is uh, the, the Latin word term was per se notum, and it means it's, it's known to yourself. You immediately grasp it. A lot of debate as to whether there is um, self-evident knowledge or not. Some of that can easily be distorted into mysticism. We'll talk about that later. We hold these truths to be self-evident. In other words, their assumption was everybody inherently knows this, that all men are what? Created. Three times here we have the word created, talking about human beings as creatures. Now, what they meant by a creature was what the Judeo-Christian heritage teaches, that God created everything in six days, rested on the seventh, that God created the universe out of nothing, and he created man equally in his image. Male and female created he them, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So all men, by that they don't mean all males, they mean all human beings are created equal. Now, people want to scream sexist here, but we have to interpret historical documents in light of the time in which they were written. And what we see here is that that the term men did not always mean male, but they're applying this equally to all mankind. Why did they call the human race mankind? It's not a sexist term. They called it mankind because according to the Bible, God created the man first, and he created the woman out of the rib, the side of the man, and so she came from the man. So the, all human beings descended from that one man, that one male, so they are called mankind. He's the first, and he's the head of the race. And if you were a Puritan living in that time, even up into the late 19th century, when you were taught taught the alphabet from the from the primers that they used, they had little sayings with each letter of the alphabet. And what you would learn in the, your first letter, A, A is for Adam. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so you'd go through the whole alphabet and you would learn theology as, lo- as well as uh, your, your letters, as well as your alphabet. So they're created equal. They're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And that means that the creator, these rights are given as part of their, I'm going to use another big word, as part of their ontological makeup. That's just a synonym for metaphysics. As part of their, their total makeup, what makes them a human being, their imageness in God, their whole nature and essence is bound up in that, that they are endowed by their creator. It is inherent to who they are as an image bearer of God. They're, the creator endows them with these unalienable rights. They're not given to them by their parents. They're not given to them by the government. They're not given to them by some empire. They come from God. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is all from the Declaration of Independence. I want to th- talk a little bit about this phrase, the laws of nature, nature's God. What you will hear often, the claim from those who 
have a purely secular interpretation of the founding of America because, and the interesting thing is most of these guys have never taken theology, never taken a religion course, they don't know anything about the Bible, and they've never studied church history. And so they've just had, all they've been exposed to is this purely secular view of, of history. And yet we know that 95, 98% of Americans were profoundly religious, and by religious they meant Christian. So this is the claim you'll hear, that this phrase was used by Jefferson and the other founders and is an expression derived from deism. And they will specifically say that it came to them through Locke and some of the other Enlightenment thinkers. They said it's grounded on Enlightenment rationalism and it is an, it's used to intentionally reject a Judeo-Christian theism. Is that true or false? Well, if you've been listening to me, you can guess that I'm going to say it's false, and it was. The reality is that in the 19th, uh, 18th century, in the 1700s, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is viewed as the creator God of all mankind who instilled into every human being a moral law that is known through general revelation. They're going to get that from the Bible. That's what the Bible teaches, that everybody has this, this knowledge of right and wrong from general revelation, that is, from observing God's creation. The moral law was described by them as the, quote, law of nature. That was a term that had been in vogue for over 500 years in Christian theology, the law of nature. And, you know, we use the word nature today as if nature is autonomous. We've almost personified it. The word I use when most people use the word nature is I use the word creation. I don't go out into nature. I go out into creation. It is God's creation. Uh, and that's how, but th back then they thought of nature as, a, as an exact synonym for creation. So when they described something as a law of nature, they were really talking about the law of creation. And this had been used over 500 years in Christian theology and in legal history. A couple of examples from the 18th century in 1764. This is during the time of the Stamp Acts and the Sugar Acts. James Otis protested the Stamp Acts as Sugar Acts and he said that British rights, because all the colonists were British citizens, he said British rights were founded in the law of God and nature. And he's not a deist. In the early 1600s, William Ames, who was one of the most significant Puritan theologians, shapes Puritan Calvinistic Reformed theology up to this day, wrote a theology text, I have a copy, called The Marrow of Theology. And in there, he says that the law of nature, using that term, is synonymous with the law of God written on the hearts of all men. He gets that out of Romans 2. We'll see that in a minute. So what this shows us is that this idea of the law of nature and nature's God came out of a biblical foundation and is co-opted by deists. Why? Because most of the deists grew up in a Judeo-Christian home. And so that, that's just the term they're using. Now, when we look at the culture, the Anglo culture, the culture of England and, and uh, mostly England, but also some of, of uh, Western Europe, 
we see an, uh, the influence of the Bible in their thinking and in their culture. You can go back to the ninth century, the 800s. The king in England is Alfred the Great. He was a Saxon. And he wrote down the laws of England. It was called the Book of Dooms. In Saxon, dooms meant the law. So he writes down the laws. And the laws are derived from where? Where does he get them? He gets them from the Bible. Alfred knew Hebrew. He knew Greek. He translated many of the Psalms into Saxon, into the vernacular language of the people. He translated the Ten Commandments and portions of the law into the common language of of the people at his time so that they would know the Word of God. He influences the key persons, the key minds in the uh, 18th, 17th, and 18th century. John Locke, 18th century Enlightenment thinker, but he was reared in a Puritan home. Uh, Sir William Blackstone, who is uh, the one who codifies and comments on the laws of England. And everybody who was going to be in the legal profession had to read Blackstone. They all read Blackstone. Everybody's influenced by Blackstone. So important. You, you You can't understand the founding father's generation if you don't understand the influence of Blackstone. He's an Oxford law professor, wrote the commentaries on the laws of of England. Then there's uh, Rabbi Moses ben Maimon. He's known as Maimonides in history, and he wrote a book, a a commentary using the the laws of the Torah, uh, Jewish commercial law. So that comes into, has a very influential role Then you have church canon law during the late Middle Ages, 1100s, 1200s, Lanfranc, Thomas of Becket, John of Salisbury, and then the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta, the barons are basically revolting against the abuses of King John. You all remember bad Prince John who who fought, uh, who's taxing all of the people in England. And so Robin Hood came up and was robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Well, he became King John, and he is a bit of a tyrant. So the barons uh, got together, and they forced him to sign the Magna Carta, which was a list of their rights, and that ultimately the king reigned at the at the behest of the barons. So that put the king of England under under the authority of the barons, of, of the leaders. This is really important because later on when you get the Stuarts and you have um, uh, James I, who is James VI of Scotland, when he becomes the king in England, he comes from a different tradition. He comes from with a Scottish background, and he thinks that he, he argues for the divine right of kings. Well, England, English history knew nothing about the divine right of kings. They got their rights... Uh, the king ruled at the uh, with the blessing of the barons, and he was not. Uh, they didn't. They rejected this whole idea, and so by 1689, there's a lot of revolution. There's a Puritan revolution during that century, and then they developed the English Bill of Rights. All of these th- things on the left influence Locke's thinking, Blackstone's thinking, and through them. All of this influences the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. So you can't take 
those founding documents out of that context. Romans 2.14 says that when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is, they don't have the law of Moses, by nature do the things in the law, they say that murder is wrong, lying, false witness is wrong. When they do, when they do by nature the things that are in the law, although not having the law, they are a law unto themselves. So what would you call that? Natural law. That's where that term developed. Who show, show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. So in terms of common grace, God has provided through general revelation information on what is right, what is wrong. Blackstone wrote in his commentaries, he said, man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator. Now see how that goes back to our understanding of God as creator in the thinking of the late 18th century. Whether you're Christian or non-Christian, you thought within these categories. Man considered as a creature must necessarily be a subject to the laws of his creator for he is an entirely dependent being. We're not independent. We're not autonomous. We don't make up our own laws. We don't make up our own rules. We don't live our lives. Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. We're all dependent upon God and under his authority. And consequently, as man depends absolutely upon his maker for everything, it is necessary that he should in all points conform to his maker's will. This will of his maker is called what? The law of nature. See, he's using the term law of nature not like a deist, but he's using it as a, as a believer, as an orthodox Christian. So he defined it. Sir Edward Koch stated, the law of nature is that which God at the time of creation of the nature of man infused into his heart for his preservation and direction, and this is eternal law, lex eterna. The moral law also called the law of nature. So this is a Judeo-Christian theistic concept. It is not a deistic concept. Blackstone elsewhere says, the doctrines thus delivered we called the revealed or divine law. That is that which God revealed to the scriptures. And they are to be found only in the holy scriptures. As then the moral precepts of this law are indeed of the same original with those of the law of nature. So basically what we see here is that the thinking of the founding fathers is influenced by all these people. Laws of nature, nature's God is not a deistic concept and many other of the other terms that are used such as providence and the supreme being and these other terms are found in many other, uh, many other quotes and many other, uh, other uh, statements. For example... Isaac Watts referred to God as nature's God in a poem that he wrote about Psalm 148.10. You look at the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was a foundational doctrinal statement by the uh, Presbyterians in England, the Reformed Calvinists, and they use terms like the Supreme Judge the great creator of all things. They refer to God as the first cause. They refer to God as the righteous judge and God the creator and the supreme Lord and king of all the world 
All this language is used to describe God in the Westminster Confession of 1647 and again in the American Revision in 1788. So this is common language that Christians used at that time to talk about God. So what we're looking at is these basic areas of a worldview. We start with ultimate reality. Is it personal or is it impersonal? Uh, And this includes the idea of of humanity in the development of worldview in, in most of the books that I've consulted and read, they always include the nature of man in ultimate metaphysics. What is the nature of man and why do they do that? Because in a Christian theistic worldview, in a Judeo-Christian worldview, man is created in the image and likeness of God. So you start with God and who's the image of God? It's mankind. It's the human race. And so we're all created in the image and likeness of God, so that helps us understand who we are as God intended when he created the human race. And then we have to go to what happened. If we were created perfect and God put us in perfect environment and there was nothing wrong and God gave responsibility to uh, Adam and Eve to rule over creation and they couldn't, they couldn't, they weren't going to foul the environment. They weren't going to uh, kill all of the animals. They weren't going to uh, rape nature. None of these things were going to happen because it was all perfect environment, all, hum- all conformity. So what happened? That's when we get into sin and the corruption of sin. And we'll get to that next time to sit, tie it together with what the founding fathers thought. The human race is significant because it is created by God in his image and likeness. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And this shows that even after the fall, every human being is made intentionally, distinctively by God, Uh, even though it's through the intermediate means of procreation and the embryo growing in in the womb, God is nevertheless providentially supervising everything. When we looked at, looking at this concept of the image of God, we think back to who God is and what we talked about. And we talked about the fact that God is personal, he's capable of relationships, He has created man to be able to enjoy that relationship with him. God is self-conscious. God knows who he is. He has thorough self-knowledge, something none of us have. Uh, He is uh, is aware of who he is, and he he is distinct from all of his creation. A third category is that he exercises will and determination. That's part of what it means to be a person. He exercises will. He chooses what he will create, when he will create, how he will create it, what its purpose and goal is. He exercises will and determination. And God has intellect. With God, his intellect is without boundaries. He is omniscient. His knowledge is infinite, has no limitations. And God's knowledge is different from our knowledge because God knows all things always. 
He always has known everything, whereas we have to learn everything, and our knowledge is finite, and it will never be infinite. We will never know all that there is to know, so we'll spend eternity uh, learning things. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, we have the core passage on the creation of man. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we learn here is that God created man to rule over his creation. Uh, God created man to be the, uh, the, the ruler to be his representative to all that he created on the earth. And he has put man, he put man, Adam, over all of that creation, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, the beasts of the field, over all the earth. He created them, then in verse 27, in his image. Male and female he created them in his image. What does that mean? That means that... They reflect who God is. This is inherent in the Judeo-Christian worldview. It means that God created man as a unique and distinct creation from all of his other creatures. In the previous days, he has created uh, the insects, he's created the birds, he's created the fish, he's created the animals. But now he's going does something different. Unlike all other creatures, the human is in God's image. Both male and female are in his image. Uh, as I began, I quoted from Psalm uh, 139, talking about, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's interesting that in the, uh, the Hebrew is an awkward, awkward construction, so it's difficult to translate. But the NET translation states in a footnote that the literal direct translation would read, I am distinct, amazing are your works. So it emphasizes the uniqueness of every single human being. Therefore, every human being has inherent value because he is in the image of God. If we start with Genesis one twenty six to 28 that man's created in the image of God. The next time we see that talked about is in Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, God says that if, if a man takes another man's life, if there's murder, if man sheds blood, takes another man's life, then he should, have, he should forfeit his life. By man, his blood should be shed. And then it gives a reason. He doesn't say because this will detour it so it won't happen anymore. He doesn't give any of the other reasons people think of. He says, because that person he killed is created in my image. So that the murder of a human being is the destruction of an image bearer, and that is an indirect attack upon God. And that is why it deserves the death penalty. <clears throat> That's the next time we see it. So even after sin, man, every human being is still in the image of and likeness of God, even though it is corrupted uh, as a result of sin. So when we think about the image of God, we have to think about who God is, relate the 
things that we talked about to every human being. First of all, we said that God was personal and infinite. Well, man is personal, but he is finite. He is limited. God's a person, and he created the the first humans to correspond to him as a person to enjoy fellowship together and to interact with God. Therefore, God in his omniscience created every human being so that they could communicate with him, so that they could understand who God is, and so that they could be fulfilled in that. Excuse me. So that they could be fulfilled in that relationship. God created them to have that personal relationship with him. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in our heart. Other theologians have commented on that. Augustine, for example, said that we have a God-shaped vacuum in our soul, that we can only find ultimate fulfillment when we are in right relationship with God. So God created us uh, with the ability to communicate with him, to understand his communication to us, what he would reveal to us, and to learn about him and his creation. I believe that Adam and Eve were, were created with, with an IQ we can't imagine. They were, they were absolutely perfect in every area, and they were uh, extremely quick learners. I think if you look around at people who are geniuses in math and science and music and art and architecture and theology and writing and literature and acting, you think about the best of the best. All of that was in Adam and Eve squared. Okay, to the nth degree, they they were just phenomenal. Uh, the way they could learn, the way they assimilate information, and God first created man. And when He first created Adam, and put him in the garden, God began to give him uh, some instruction. And as God gave him instruction, it was ultimately designed for Adam to give that instruction to. To Eve. So when we talk about the image of God, it includes these, these commands that God gave to Adam. So that indicates something we'll talk about later, personal responsibility. So we see that God is personal. As part of him being a personal, being personal, he knows himself. He has self-consciousness. So when he creates man in his image, man has self-con- uh, self-consciousness. I've observed through uh, my life that animals don't do a very good job of having self-consciousness. You will see dogs bark at their reflection. You will see birds get in a fight with their reflection in a, in a, in, on a window. You'll see a lot of different things like that because they don't have a self-identity like human beings do. And so a human being looks in the mirror and knows what he is seeing. He understands what he looks like, he all of a sudden, oh, I don't look like that, do I? I'm too fat, I'm too thin, my hair is falling out, my, uh, you know, they, they don't like that. So they understand that that is who they are. So God has created us with self-consciousness to understand ourselves. And we understand our hopes, we understand our dreams, we understand our strengths and our weaknesses, but we only come to learn about our identity as a special creation by God if we go to God's Word. We can learn a lot about ourselves 
through observation, which is what we'll talk about in terms of knowledge, which is in the sense of empiricism. We can learn all kinds of things by observing ourselves, but we can't learn that we're in God's image apart from the Word of God. And so the Word of God that tells, tells us that we're a special creation made in God's image. Just as God has self-determination, we have self-determination, but of course it's finite and it's limited, and it's under the ultimate control of God's, God's will and God's sovereignty. But we make decisions. We make choices in how we respond to situations. Our decisions are uh, uncoerced. We are responsible for those decisions, and we are responsible for the consequences of those decisions. For example, if you purchase a car, you can choose whether or not you can maintain it or not. There may be other factors related to your income and how how well you're able to take care of it, but ultimately you have to decide how well you're going to take care of it. And if you do well, it will provide you with years of service. And if you don't do well, then you may find yourself uh, running out of gas. You may find yourself with an engine that seizes up or a cracked block or any number of other things because you fail to maintain the engine. And so you're responsible for taking care of it. And if you don't, you fail in your responsibility, then you suffer the negative negative consequences, both in terms of the inconvenience that comes when it breaks down, as well as the cost of repair. So God has also then created us with intellect. He's created us with a mind, the ability to learn, the ability to discover, the ability to put together things that we observe. We observe something here and something there, and then we put it together and we build our array of knowledge as a result of that. Uh, knowledge is predicated, or learning and knowledge is predicated upon the ability to reason, to use something that uh, I'll sometimes call the logic machine in our brain, where we're able to put these things together in order to develop our knowledge and to acquire even more knowledge. And all of that ability was designed by God, and ultimately it was all to be used to glorify God and to honor him and to be able to fulfill the mission that God gave the human race, which is to rule over the planet in a way that was responsible and would glorify God. And since God created us to know him and to understand him, he created us to be able to understand his revelation either the verbal revelation that he gave to Adam and Eve or later the written revelation which came through Moses and the other writers of Scripture. So every human being is created with the capability to understand, to learn all about God's creation, all about God, and to understand him. And as we learn, we discover that we have the ability to put these things together and to come to new conclusions. And then we can apply that knowledge in fresh and creative ways because since God created us, God created the universe, we look at the universe and we see God's creativity. Since we are image bearers, we also have creativity. And you can think about people in the arts, you can think about musicians, you can think about uh, visual arts, painting, you can talk about the uh, literary arts. All of these are manifestations of that creativeness that is part of the imageness of God. So God put man in this one location, a perfect location that God designed for him called 
the Garden of Eden. And he put them there to fulfill these basic five commands. To be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. That means to expand out over all of the earth. All of the earth was perfect and perfect environment. Uh, even today, we do not. There are many places on the earth that have no population whatsoever. They not be may, they may not be very livable. They may be the Sahara Desert, or you may be down in uh, the rainforests of the Amazon somewhere where it's very difficult to live. But eventually, people go there and they begin to carve out a place uh, a place to live. We are to fill the earth. That's God's intention in order to. Uh, discover all of the natural resources, to learn to develop and use those natural resources because that's why God placed them there is to improve our lives and to uh, give us so that we could exercise that authority over the creation that God delegated to us. So by God, by, um, excuse me, by fulfilling that task, Adam would be required to use the intellect that God had given him to learn about the environment and especially uh, about the animals. And one of the first things that God did was to uh, begin to initiate Adam's vocabulary. And he gave Adam, the woman wasn't created yet, this is still early on the sixth day, the task to name all of the animals. Now, in order to name all of the animals, Adam was going to be required to observe them, to determine where there were certain animals that were alike and certain animals that were not alike, and that he would be using the rational parts of his intellect in order to analyze all of these different creatures, and he would be using his logic in order to reach certain conclusions about different animals and to discover uh, what they were and which animals went together male and female. Now remember, this is at a time when we don't have all the uh, breakdown of species like we have today. The text of the scripture just says God created kinds. And these kinds were probably a category closer to our understanding of a genus or family. So there were uh, much fewer of these categories. Later they get broken down and develop into the uh, species along the way. So Adam is going to use his reasoning skills, that's rationalism. He's going to be observing the animals, that's empiricism. So we'll look at how we learn things under empiricism. How do we know truth? How do we learn things? One way people say we learn things is rationalism. The second way is empiricism. But we also see evidence of the third way here. The third way is that God reveals certain truths that cannot be learned from either reason or empiricism. And we call that revelation. Now, in the way some people break this down, they will refer to that as authority, but God is the authority on everything in his creation, and he is the one who gives Adam and Eve the the necessary information so they can correctly interpret their environment. Now, they're in this perfect garden, and they see all these beautiful trees, and God tells him about these trees. The woman hasn't been created yet. Out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, that restricts these, not every tree, but the ones that are beautiful and they will provide food for Adam and later the woman to eat in the garden. So every tree 
It's there, and then there's the tree of life. There's two special trees: the tree of life, and then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, God created this tree of the knowledge of good and evil as a test for Adam and for Eve after he had created. This is still early in the in the sixth day, so he hasn't created Eve yet. Because part of the task for naming the animals was for Adam to discover empirically that the cow has a bull, the buck has a doe. He's got male and female for everything except for him, there's no counterpart. There's no feminine counterpart. So he's going to recognize that he has a need for this counterpart, and then God will supply that need by creating the woman from from his side. So God has this tree that he puts in the middle of the garden that is the test tree to see if Adam will obey him. And he tells him that you can eat from all the other trees in the garden, but from this tree you can't eat. The day you eat of it, the instant you eat from it, you will surely die, he's told. So he could look all day analyzing all the trees, and he would never discover that that tree would be the source of spiritual death unless God told him. So you can learn a lot of things through rational rationalism through the use of reason and logic. You can learn a lot of things through empiricism, through the use of observation, empiricism, and logic. But you can't learn some things. God has to tell you. God has to reveal it to you. You can only learn it because of of, uh, God's revelation. And what that illustrates for us is a verse in Psalm Psalm 36, 9 where David says, in your light, we see light. In other words, we can learn certain things, but it's, it's rather dim sometimes. It's like we're, you ever get up in the, in the night, maybe in a situation where the power's gone out, and you fumble along, you find a flashlight, and you're looking for your clothes, and you've got to get dressed, figure out how to get out into the... Uh, get out in the garage and find the fuse box and flip the switch and see what's going on. And so you have this little flashlight, so you're stumbling around trying to find everything, and then all of a sudden the power comes back on and the main light comes on. Now you see everything much better than you did with just a flashlight. That's what he's talking about. In God's light, we see light. Doesn't mean we can't see light to some degree without God's revelation, but when we have God's revelation, it makes everything else make, that is illuminated make sense. In your light, we see light. And so Adam and Eve were able to correctly understand and interpret the difference between the one tree and the other trees only because of the illumination from God's statement that if you eat from this tree, you will certainly die. So this is going to set us up for next time when we'll start to go through these systems of perception. How do we know what we know? What are the theories? What are the views? There are four different ways that we, that we learn, and it's rationalism, empiricism, mysticism, which we don't see in Genesis 1 or 2, and revelation. So that becomes the standard. 
and then we're going to be able to see how the founding fathers thought about this, especially in relation to that fourth category of revelation. What do we mean by that? So we'll come back next time. We'll look at this, break it down, and then just see some examples. Uh, the examples I'm giving from the founding fathers are just, they're selective and they're representative because I can't go through all the, all the numerous uh, ones that are there. One book I'll recommend that is very helpful, has a lot of information, is a book by Daniel uh, Dreisbach, D-R-E-I-S-B-A-C-H, Dreisbach. Fuller Scholarship, I believe, to Oxford, brilliant. Uh, edited a number of books, but he has a book out called Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. And he, his scholarly credentials are impeccable. And he teaches, in, I believe, at the law school at George Washington University. So he is, he's just outstanding how he presents what the Founding Fathers said about what they believed. And he's very, I don't normally use the word balanced, but he, but he is. He recognizes that there are some Founding Fathers they were not orthodox biblically, but on the other hand, they weren't deists either. Uh, some of them were in, influenced by the early stages of Unitarianism, and so they doubted the deity of Christ. They doubted uh, the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross in their later years, like John Adams. But John Adams grew up in a congregational church that was extremely orthodox, but it's not until he gets into his later years and comes under the influence of the Enlightenment thinkers that he reads that he begins to change his views. But he did not have those views early on. And the same thing is true for several others. There are others like George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, that are commonly said by many scholars today, so-called scholars today, as they were all deists as well. Many of them were deists except they never give a shred of evidence, no proof. They never show anything that they said or did that indicates that they were influenced at all by deism. Arguments that they'll use are these arguments, well, they talked about God in these abstract terms such as the creator, the supreme being, pro the, the providence, these kinds of terms. But as I've shown you, that was common by everybody from the 1600s into the 1700s and it was common in things like the orthodox documents of the Westminster Confession of Faith so it, what they claim is evidence is no evidence okay so we'll come back next time and begin talking about where we get knowledge father thank you for this opportunity to look at these things to break down what we have from you what your scripture has revealed to us that we can know things, we can know truth. You have made us so that we can know truth, so that we can understand truth, so we have critical thinking skills, so that we can evaluate the strengths and weaknesses of arguments and discussions, so that we can uh, expand our uh, thinking and intellectual capabilities. And we do this because we are created in your image and likeness, and that makes us distinct from every other creature on this planet. Father, we pray that you'd help us to understand how this fits together in helping us look at the world as you look at the world and not as 
as human beings who have rejected you, who are suppressing the truth of your existence, not looking at the world as they look at the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.